Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Stands. Today we are beginning a new journey, a new series called Jewish Communities Around the World. And I would love to continue doing this once every couple of weeks and maybe once a month. And we will be introducing cultures, communities of Jewish Orthodox people. A funny little story I want to share with you as I was sharing this idea with someone I often check in with and share what I'm working on. She's like, oh, great. You got to interview this rabbi in And she named a city in America. And I told her, that's the whole point. It's not another city in America, even though there are wonderful states and cities and places in the States and Israel that no one has heard of. And maybe I will cover them as well. But the world is so much bigger than just America and Israel. So here we go. We will start with none other than Moscow, Russia, a community that I called home for the first 15 years of my life. If you like this episode and you like this idea, please do let me know so I can continue doing these interviews. If you don't like them, tell me that as well. So if this episode does well, I will definitely look into doing this more. One thing I would like to mention is that I was sick when I was recording this episode, so my voice sounds a little different, but I am better now, so thank you for caring. The throwback episode for today is The Harsh Realities of Balchuva Life with Gloria Davis. The link is in the show notes, so check that out. I do need your help with an episode I'm working on. I am looking for fully divorced individuals to share their reasons for divorce. If you would like to contribute to a future episode, you can record a voice note in a quiet space, speak closely to the microphone part of your phone and send it to me via WhatsApp. My information will be in the show notes. You can also share your name or remain anonymous. Two more things happening at the end of this episode. Number one, I did allow for Benjamin Mualem to respond to last week's response from Esty. So thank you for all your messages, but I do want to give him one chance to just defend himself before we wrap this up completely. And at the end of this episode, I will also be sharing something really raw from a shatran I am close with, and she uh, wanted to share this as anonymously as possible. So I will be reading her write-up at the end of the episode. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you will enjoy the other podcasts on the network. I am also a podcast consultant. I help people launch their podcasts, grow their podcasts. If you would like to support the show, there are many ways you can do that. So feel free to reach out if you'd like to sponsor a future episode or contribute. If you do not want to contribute financially at this time, you could always spread the word about this podcast and help us grow. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to the show, Friends Stands. Today with us, we have Sarah Katz all the way from Moscow, Russia. And we are beginning our series of episodes, Jewish communities around the world. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hello, Katie. We'll start this series with telling us a little bit about yourself and your upbringing, your religious upbringing, and then we'll continue on to the work that you do and the Jewish community 
that you run. I think it's pretty. Okay. So I'm Sarah. I was born in Moscow, actually, in 89, back then. My mother became from, my mother became religious when I was three years old. So basically, I don't remember any life before that. <laughs> so that was sort of like, I didn't have a choice in that. But there were, like, my upbringing wasn't very familiar to anyone. It was like a sort of very unique, let's put it that way, because my mother was from, my father wasn't. So I always had this, you know, choice of like, whom I'm going to follow more. Then I went to a Jewish school. It was very brand new, opened by Freddy's mother. So I finished that Jewish school. I was an only from kid in my class, which was also a very unique experience in my life. And then I decided not to go and learn in Israel, which everyone probably wished I would. I decided to stay in Moscow. I was an only kid, so I, I didn't like feel like leaving my home when I was 15. So I continued in Moscow, finished a university, a secular university here in Moscow, learning with non-Jewish people for five years. So I got my master's there. And then I got married in Jerusalem and also not like a normal person which would stay here and have a normal life. I decided to come back to Moscow with my husband and continue working here. So that's like a very short biography of mine. <laughs> it's the first time I'm hearing your biography in this sense. You so see? Super fun. Okay. Almost like I'm hearing it for the first time. Right. If you were talking to a group of people who are only exposed to communities in, let's say, the U.S., even if they are in out-of-town communities or in communities in Israel, how would you describe or paint a picture of what life in Moscow is like as a Jewish, observant, religious, Orthodox person? You mean now or when I was growing up? Well, let's start with when you were growing up. I think we all have this, not only people who live in a normal, like, you know, standard Jewish community, but we all have sort of ideas, like stigmas, you know, stereotypes in our head. And we think like, oh, you know, if a kid doesn't have religious friends, so he's not going to be normal. If a kid is from a family where mother and father had very different opinions on, you know, Yiddish guys, so probably the kid is not going to be okay. Like we all have these ideas in mind. And I also have tons of those ideas in mind. I remember being at a lecture in a seminar and the rabbi was very into saying that if a mother and a father have different religious opinions, so the kid is going to be, be really crazy. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, I didn't become free. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? So my life taught me that life is very different. And sometimes you think that there's going to be a problem and there's no problem. And something, everything is so standard and so excellent and just the way you dreamed, 100%, you know? And then we see a problem. I wondered a lot, you know, why Hashem wanted me to grow up in such a, you know, a little crazy situation, being an only you know, religious kid, you know, and well, I had to have those philosophical discussions about Yiddish guides. I think from the age of like seven, eight, you know, people asked me like, why do you do that? And why do you do this? And don't you think it's too much? Whatever. I, I remember those conversations, like when I was a very small kid. And that really prepared me a lot for everything I'm doing today when I'm a grown-up person, you know, an adult, a teaching and everybody. So everything is a plan and we never know why we have certain circumstances in life and what are they trying to teach you. So that's one thing I learned myself, you know, looking at everything I grew up in. Also, that, that specific background gave me a possibility to understand people who are very different from me. So let's say when my students now are telling me their, you know, crazy lives in their houses and what their, you know, what their life looks like. My colleagues who are, let's say, from Israel, Shlichot from Israel, are looking at them like, oh my God, what are you talking about? 
oh, I said, help her. It's too much for me. Like, I'm okay with that. Because again, like, this is what I've heard from the age of 10. I grew up with those, you know, with those kids from very hard families in Russia who have very hard backgrounds and who have fights with their parents about trying to keep kosher. Like, that's so normal for me. That's just something which is so natural to talk about. Again, that helps me a lot uh, being who I am now. So that's one thing. Could you give some more examples of the hard, complicated dynamics in the families? Like you grew up here also, Freddy, right, in Moscow. So you know that, let's say, in my class, which was a great class, by the way, I don't remember. I think only one kid had both parents married. We had, I think, 15 girls. And they had one more friend, which had a mother and a father living under the same roof. Okay? So the rat were like, my father, who is that? <laughs> you know? Or, yes, my father. Oh, my God. No, I just don't want to see him. Like, that, again, that was their normal. And for me, it was weird and strange. But again, now I have the same picture more or less with my students. And if I would never, ever, ever see such a thing, you know, I would never, ever, ever understand what they're going through. And I would probably tell them advice, which is not so relevant because I would not understand what is the life they're living. So going back, you had more things you wanted to share. I wanted to go back to the idea of like stigmas, you know, and stereotypes. So I, I remember a lot of my teachers were telling me, ah, if you stay in Moscow, if you go to a secular university, you're going to for sure be not from, like you're going to be like the guy you are learning with. And it wasn't true. <laughs> like it really wasn't true. Actually, the years I spent in this uh, secular university were the most productive years of my religious life because I missed Yiddishkeit so much. And I missed the Jewish Sviva, the Jewish friends and the company and everything so much. And I started to learn myself. I started to learn online. That was like my own decision, which I made towards the religious observance and the, the knowledge of Judaism, which I wanted to be my life after that. So like everything is much more complicated than what we see. I see it now as a challenge for me. I'm a mother of a bar mitzvah boy. And I now soon I'll Mazel tov, by the way. I'll have to find like the yeshiva for him. So I see this stigmas all the time. Like if he's going to go to this and this yeshiva, he's going to get married to this and that girl. He's not going to get married to this and that. He's going to become that. Like we don't know. Okay. Okay. But let me stop you right here. You're clearly brilliant because you spent minimal amounts of time in a country where English is the first language right. and your English here is fluent and so natural. So you're you're showing us some extraordinary abilities you have, which may also show up if you are in an environment that's completely non-Jewish and that inspires you to connect more to your Judaism. But take your average kid who doesn't necessarily connect through learning who isn't so academic or intellectually able. Maybe their sviva is very important because that's literally all they're soaking in because the academics is very limited. Right. Freddy, I totally agree about the sviva. I totally agree. Like I, I'm very <laughs> like I'm a mother who is like choosing the sviva before everything else. Like I, it's so important for me, like who are my friends' kids and I spend time with them and I like to invite them home. Like I'm totally into the idea of sviva. I'm just saying that we have to, I'm a psychologist also, right? I learned a lot of psychology and I work with family and couples here. 
So when I'm being a psychologist in my private practice, we have such a thing of, tell me if in English it sounds clear, questioning your assumptions. Like, I think that, you know, he has this diagnosis, okay? I have to question my assumptions. Like, I have to ask so many questions to be, to be sure that I'm right. Because there are people who, oh, you have that, you have that, you have this, okay? You're, you're, you're sick, you're crazy. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm just telling you that my own life showed me that it's much more complicated and the kid can grow up in a very mixed environment and her friends can be totally not religious and then those friends will become religious because now it's funny i look at my class chat and like so many girls are from now why when they're from then when i needed that the most you know they were all not from but now like after like fifth how i like i finished school 20 years ago oh my goodness 20 years ago and now they're from so I changed them more than they, they changed me. And I don't think it's because I'm brilliant or something like that. It's just, that's the way Hashem wanted them to be. And if we're not putting ourselves in the test, I wasn't clearly putting myself in the situation. You know, I grew up in Moscow. My, my mother couldn't send me to Lakewood when I was five. <laughs> and so like, that's just the, the life Hashem designed for me. I did my best. My mother did my best. You know, we all really tried to be good and to do good and do the right choices, which weren't, by the way, easy. And everything turned out good. Great, Baruch Hashem. I'm just saying that, you know, things are much more complicated than they, we think they are. That's all I'm trying to say. Because this revise is an important thing. I agree with you. What choices did you just <laughs> imply? I had a lot of choices in my life, which probably a normal person doesn't. <laughs> what do I mean? Like, it was, when I, I was very close with my mother and I was very close with my father. Okay. So I saw their lives being very different. And they lived together in a very, very good shalom bias, okay? So I sometimes people tell me, oh, so probably your parents had a very bad shalom bias. And no, they had a very good shalom bias. I wish all of my religious couples and friends would have such a shalom bias they had. It's again, the assumption, the assumption. Uh, my parents were very clear about like you can sort of live like your mother and like you, you ha can live like your father. You have to choose and this decision was like in my head. I remember from year nine, eight, maybe. Like it was very clear to me. Here I have a person which I love and respect, and she lives like that. And I have a person which I love and respect, and he lives totally opposed. That's one decision I had. Again, like having so many friends which were not from, which invited me to all their, you know, not kosher birthday parties in their houses. It was a choice to come, not to come, to come and, you know, to come, to come with my own food, not to come with any food. Like small decisions are really not, not easy, you know, when you're a kid and you don't have any other friends and these are the friends you have. And then like afterwards going to Israel because this is the, you know, traditional way for a from girl to do. And in my heart, I understand that I'm not ready to leave my, my home. What should I do? So many choices like that. And I, and another choice which I had when I already understood that I would be, you know, a from person, would I be just from because that's what I was brought in? Or would I be from finding my own path? Like, I remember this the cho is a choice. Maybe it was the biggest choice. Because to be from, not to be from is a very big abstract choice. But then we come to like small things and, okay, are you just following the route and doing what your mother taught you to do? Or are you really like finding your own way in your Avedas Hashem? So that was another choice. And uh, afterwards, to, to, to do Kiruv or to live a normal life? Because <laughs> I will explain to you in a few minutes why 
doing care of for me is not a very normal life. Okay, just tell me quickly what Lakewood was like when you were five years old. You arrived there for how long? I had, if you see me now, I'm like not hiding that. I had a very, when I was born, I had a very big, how do you say, pit no, help me with this. I like half of my face was red. Was a birthmark a on birthmark your face? On face. A it was huge. Now you see a very small one, but it was huge, huge, huge. And my mother wanted to help me. So uh, in Russia, there were, were no options for that at that time. Now there are tons. So I had to travel to America, to Lakewood, basically every summer and make those laser operations on my face. So basically, you know, America and Lakewood and everything you mentioned has this medical association in my head, like hospitals and doctors and, you know, like for a kid and it's still inside. But of course, like there I met, suddenly I see, not, I'm not the only crazy from kid, there are like thousands of them, oh my gosh. It was interesting. People related to me as a Nabakh Soviet kid who doesn't have anything in her life, no chocolates, and they just gave me all the sweet baby sweat. They bought me like Miss Vadok, you know, like packages and packages of sweets. And then I came home and I had to cure my stomach because I maybe killed it. Okay. I just remember this and they said like Nabakh, Nabakh, Nabakh. And I didn't I didn't understand what they're talking about. Like who is Nabakh over here? Like I don't feel Nabakh at all. Just an interesting world. But people, like, I, I, the first time I saw such an outpouring, you know, said and people wanted to help, and people were offering their houses and whatever, like, help with the medical insurance, everything. Let's go into your adult professional life, you choosing Kirov. Let's go a little bit more into that. So when I was not married yet, I was finishing my university. There, there's one story I want to tell you because I think it's very... It's very interesting for what we're talking about. When I was 15, and again, like everyone told my mother, just send her away, send her away, send her away. Like Israel is waiting for her. She has to become from, like normally from there. She's going to find her shit off, whatever. And my mother saw that I'm not ready to leave. And my father was very against me leaving the house, like all the balagat. So she wrote a letter, I remember, to Rosh Taman from Ayayasevich. There was a whole, you know, a whole shasharet, how she did this. And she asked Rosh Taman, you know, what I'm doing here? I have this girl, I have this uh, daughter, who, uh, uh, what should I do? And she said, like, if she doesn't feel like leaving the house, she should stay in Moscow and something is going to open the, up there. When my mother received this letter, it was like, you know, uh, and then uh, stay in Moscow and she will come tomorrow. Like, it was yeah. totally not like, okay, are you real? What's going to be in Moscow? I'm living here for 15 years already. Nothing is there for any adult kids, for any students. Like, what's going to be there? The year I go into this university, you know, which I chose, there was this choral shul where your father was a rabbi. They opened a SNF, they opened the students' program, and I'm becoming one of the most, you know, with one of the students who is translating the lectures. I was a leader, a student leader, who was very involved in helping build up this program. So when I was already 19, after four years of that, I felt that that's what I'm doing all day, basically. You know, I'm translating the shiurim, I'm talking to people about becoming from, I'm organizing Shabbatot in the apartment for the girls. Like, that's basically my life, okay? But I didn't look at this like a professional field because, again, I'm learning my profession over here. I'm learning to become a psychologist. So, at that, you know, it just happened that way that this organization, Tramitzion, offered me a job, you know, already doing it, like, if you're doing it 24-7, so just go do it, you know, sure, and earn something for that. And then, when I was 19, I became the head of this project, because Beata Vitkin left. I had to be the, the new 
head of the program. And I remember this nightmare. Like here I'm being like a 19-year-old girl, being a leader of a student program with average age of 25, 27. And there are those boys who are like two meters tall and they're stuck in there. And I have to be the head of that program. I'm like, Hashem, what are you? It's the biggest joke you just invented. So that was also a funny choice just to accept something which you don't think you're able, capable of. And just say yes, you know, or say, no, I'm small, you know, I'm a small girl, leave me alone. I want to get my degree and start off my life. So then I said, yes, <laughs> of course. And that's why when I got married, I told my husband, okay, just a year, let's please help Russian jewelry for a year. And then we're going to start off our nor- normal lives in Israel. And here I am, you know, after 14 years of that, still doing what I'm doing, opening my own uh, organization now. For young professionals, again, Sam exactly knows what he's doing, when he's doing, how he's orchestrating our lives. Before we go on to more of that, just take us back to your shaduchim. Okay. How did you find your shaduch? What was that like? Because you did stay back in Moscow. I did stay back in Moscow. You dated yeah, in the yeah. worst, like you know, Nefua, where it was about okay, okay, she is there still from. Okay, every every year people checked up on me and like, oh, she's still from. Wow. Okay, let's see next year. I was like this experiment. What did it do <laughs> when I didn't do everything they expected me to do? Fine. I uh, totally understood that I'm missing, you know, the normal religious education, which I was supposed to get. So my plan was to get the secular education. And w- then when I was already much, much more grown up, you know, 20 years, 20, not 15, I would go and, you know, neve something else. So every... Half a year when I had those breaks, winter breaks, summer breaks, I o- always went to Israel with my friend Esther. And we went to all those seminaries. It was Neve, it was Ashatoha, it was Ayat, like different, different seminaries. And I tried to, you know, catch up on everything I missed during the school year. And what, on one of those, you know, stays in Israel when I was 20, I just turned 20, I think. My friend Biada offered me a Shedah there. It was so funny. It was so not standard because I had to live in two days and I was like, Cool gold date when you're living in today's only sugars, but I still said yes, and I love to say yes when Hashem is throwing something on me. I have this rule of like saying yes <laughs> when you have those spekot, you know, and you see, no, I better quit. Like I teach myself, I train myself to say yes, and then look for myself. So I went. I met this boy. He was 12 years ahead. Okay, he was 32. I was 20, which was already crazy. And then he was about shuva. Okay, so I remember calling one of my rabbiniyot and said, no, like, forget it. He's about Shuva. Can you imagine what he went through? You are totally from girl, right? You were brought up in, like, you just came from age of three. And something inside of myself always wanted to marry about Shuva. Again, because this was the life which I admired. These were people who, like, changed their lives for Hashem. And for me, that was, like, very romantical, probably. It still is. (laughs) (laughs) So I did try and we went on a few like I think seven eight gishot seven eight shadokhim and he proposed and then again I was 20 and they said I don't know I don't know what to say like my mother doesn't know who you are so I better go back to Moscow and we'll see and that's not again you see like my head was not totally like crazy you know lifestyle seven meetings genog like I was a <laughs> Moscow girl okay very, very from, but not, I didn't have all those, you know, ideas that there are seven meetings, eight meetings. I had no idea. Okay. So he proposed. I said, I don't know. I'm going back home and I'm going to think. And here is the time when the Yitzhak comes, right? So when 
I'm home, I'm fine, my life is great. Why do I need to get married? Like, it's totally good here. He came to Moscow. I thought it's not going to work. It was a very long story. My husband still laughs at me that he had to wait for four months till I said yes. So he really had to wait. I was very confused, young again. Like, and then only we spoke on the phone a lot. And then I remember Purim, I had this inspiration. I call it the Ratzonel Yom. You know, when I tried to figure out with logics, like I made all those lists, you know, pluses and minuses. And it, will he be good in 10 years and in five years? You know, like all this, the head of an atlichnitsa, you say in Russian, right? The head of a, perfectionist. of a perfectionist. I tried to be Hashem, okay? To know exactly if he's the right one. And it didn't work. <laughs> I just didn't have this moment of clarity. And then I remember just yeah, like giving it up to Hashem. You know, like leaving the... I'm a very controlling personality. I love to control things. But that's not my understood. I can't. Like I just can't. I don't know if it's a yes or a no. I have no idea. So I remember this like small shift in my mindset saying, Hashem, like really, I made all the... I made Hashtadlos much more than I had to. Like it's over Hashtadlos, okay? Just tell me if it's the right thing or not. And I had this moment of clarity, thank God. I really understood that this is something for me. And I just came and made a surprise. I came to Israel to meet him. Very romantical. We can talk about this to our kids. They love to hear the story again and again. There we had, or uh, there was another funny thing. He met me at the airport and he called the Shadchanid afterwards. But she didn't give me an answer. Like she came to Israel, but she didn't give me an answer. So the Shadchanid tells him, so you just talked too much. You were so nervous that you didn't give her a chance to speak. So next, she was silent. She didn't say a word. She was just waiting for me to say something. And then I made the decision. I'm a person again. I'm telling you a lot about myself. I'm a controlling personality and it's very hard for me to make decisions. I hate making those, you know, big life decisions. Very scary. So Hashem gave me a partner who knows how to make decisions like that. And I made the decision. Again, we had we thought we we're going to build our lives in Eretz Yisrael. We both had jobs there. He had a job. I was offered a job. Like everything was so dark, you know. We rented an apartment. Everything was great. And then I just couldn't leave my students because I loved them so, 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 so much. And I said, just a year, I'm going to say goodbye to everyone in a proper way. You know, I'm going to leave up my family. It will take time, blah, blah, blah. So that's the beginning of the big story. Okay. So talk to me about the different Jewish organizations that you specifically are involved with and the dynamics between them and what what you have created because ultimately you worked for an organization and then you started your own organization and i just want to hear all about that or as much as we can here Uh, what what am i getting at i'm getting at we have politics in the moscow community as well right there's there are enough of us there there's so many people and there's so many jobs that need to be filled and so many important things that need to be done it's not I'm I'm just pic- thinking of someone listening to this and thinking, you know, there's this little hole in the wall and there's gefilte fish there <laughs> and some old people come for Yuskor right. and, and then it's just nothing. But show us, paint us a picture of what the organization looks no, like. No, again. The co- community. The community. Thank you, Brady, for like, again, giving me this, you know, viewpoint, which I don't have in my head, you know, because that's something so natural for me. You know, I grew up here. Russia is really unique. Okay. Now I'm trying to find people who are going to work for me. I'm interviewing couples for Shlichot and they're like, they're saying the same thing as you're saying now. Uh-huh. So you have this minion and you pay for the people to come because they're only old people. I'm like, 
do you know what you're talking about? Okay, like Moscow is flourishing, Baruch Hashem. It was, it was always flourishing in this terms, you know. There are tons of young people who are coming and interested, and they're young professionals, and there's a huge Chabad center, as you know, like in Marina, Russia. And there are families from families, people who are becoming from, like, uh, there's everything in Moscow. And like you said, even in this place, in this region I'm living now, which you were living in when you were growing up, I think there are like seven communities, six communities, like big and small, you know, and restaurants and cafes and pizzas and whatever. Like, it's a lot of things going on here. So like you said, every community has its own politics, its own hashkafa, and like what they do and what they don't do. And uh, like I think in every, you know, place in the world, Sometimes one person, one student, let's say, can go to different organizations, you know, and he spends Shabbos is there and he goes to Shurim here and he helps being a leader in a different place. So, yeah, like people are not stuck to one community. People are like really moving from one to another for different events, et cetera, et cetera. What you were mentioning about myself is that there was a point in my life where I understood that I want to built something on my own. I loved working with someone and it's a much more safe place. It's much easier when you just come to your... I, I was always like very passionate, you know, about my job and I was taking a lot of achrayas, taking a lot of responsibilities. But when you're not, you have to think about... I was an educational director. So I'm thinking about, you know, making a schedule and preparing lessons and doing some I'm a board meetings. Okay, now I have to worry about fundraising, you know, and all the relationship with all those different organizations and funds. And like, it's much more crazy. But again, Shem just pushes you and pushes you and pushes you. And you accept on yourself things which are not I'm not Matsim, like just not, I'm not a fundraiser by nature. It's something which I hate, okay? And I hate having having all this responsibility on my shoulders. I have six kids, Leanna right? But there was a point in life where I understood that if I really want to do, you know, Kirov, how I want to do Kirov, I have to build something myself. I also saw a very big hole in Moscow with all the, you know, organizations there are. I saw that uh, there's almost nothing for young professionals. Like people after finishing university, I still have nowhere to go. And in my eyes, it's a very important time in your life when you are after Sam, okay, after university. Most are wanting to get married or you're already married, having a lot of problems in your marriage. And then like suddenly no one is interested in you because you are already like 25, 27, 29, 30. By no one, you mean Jewish, the Jewish community has no programming yeah, or like, events? There are ton now there are like millions of programming from the age of 18 to 25. Like just every organization wants to eat you up and split you into pieces because uh, all of them have some uh, students program and stars programs and whatever. And then like when you become 29, 28, so uh, like you probably have gone to, the, to those programs already and you're like finished them, you're bored of them. And you want to, you want something on a more intellectual maybe level and you don't need to necessarily like stipends or like incentives like that. But you want content, like you really want to grow. You really want to understand if it's something which you want to go for. So that became now my audience. Officially, uh, we're Alami Moscow is also from the age of 18, 19, but most of my students are at 27 till 32, 33. And a lot of things are happening there. <laughs> I'm assuming Shadokhim is part of the program. Right. Talk to me how you do Shadokhim when you have people who are becoming from, <laughs> sort of from, not from. 
maybe from yesterday they were from. How do you say? The answer is I don't do shidduchim. Okay, that uh, you know this uh, time in your life when just I remember I got getting married and like Moscow, you everything is needed, right? There's always a lack of kohadam. Kohadam. And yeah. tower. Okay, so I remember like people calling me when I was just newlywed, and they were, you want to be a shadchanit? Yes. You want to be a balanit? Yes. You want to be like whatever? You want to uh, work for bikul cholim? Yes. Like I was that person who wanted to do everything. Now. I am 40 years after that, and I understand that if you want to do something good, you have to specialize. So Shidduchem is not my field, and I'm telling it openly to everyone around. I am not a Shadchanit. I just... Okay, but for what you know, of, right. and, and you work with couples and their complicated relationships. No, again, like I'm a family psychologist. That's a very different thing. Family. And I am a Meduchat Kala. Okay, I'm preparing girls for marriage. Like, again, that's a very different thing. To me, it sounds like you still do still, everything, but okay. It's a very Moscow thing, right. Okay, so Shidochem, like you said, in Moscow, it's very complicated because everyone has different backgrounds. It's not like, again, a Lakewood boy and a Lakewood girl and da 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 and now they're a perfect match. You know, it's much more complicated because they have very different backgrounds. And he's about Shuva and she's about Shuva, Balas Shuva, right? But she is on that level and he's at this level and she wants someone more strong because he wants to go up and she was like, it's crazy, okay? So uh, it's still like the biggest problem, especially now, because many, many, many boys left, you know, after the, after we had certain political situation here. So uh, and now I'm having like 80% girls, maybe and 20% boys. So it's a very tricky situation. You know, they all want to get married. So the question is to whom? <laughs> <laughs> so I work a lot with different Chathani Yot, you know, that come to Moscow. They don't live here. They come. And they interview the guys, they speak to them, they talk to them, and then they're trying to match them. And more Shidduchim, Prady, I'll tell you, honestly, happening by themselves. Like, no one is officially doing the Shidduch. They just meet their, meet each other at my Shabbos table. Okay, I had a lot of couples like that. And then they just talk to me and say, okay, I'm, we know you're not a Shadid, but I just like that girl, so can you talk to her? And that's much easier for me because, again, like, I'm not the one who uh, has this Ruach Kodesh about this boy being good for that girl have no clue. <laughs> so knowing a little bit about Western communities, right. Israel, the States, Europe, and you have the Russian community, when you deal professionally with them, whether it's community or as a psychologist, are there any issues, family dynamic and issues that are unique to the Russian community? Friend, you can only talk about that for like hours and years because it's very hard for a person who is not like you are a good address because you grew up here. Like the mentality is very different from everything that you were talking about before. Something we have to mention in the very beginning is that Moscow community is very, there are many parts of it. Okay. Let's say we have Sephardi community. We have people coming from Kokas. Okay. And we have people from Kaslavadan, uh, Kuba, all kinds of Sephardi Jews, which are also very different in themselves, you know, and the Gruzini community and the Shkinani community, like stop, this is one thing which has to, and they all have very different mentalities, and because they all live in Moscow, they got married a lot, you know, now we can find a lot of Ashkenazi girl marrying a party boy and then they have this, you know, split of mentalities and say, well, family, and I have to deal with it. There's a general problem of Balei Tshuva, you know, who are getting married, and they look at the from families, and they say, wow, eight kids, is beautiful, I want to have eight kids, 
And she has no idea what a kid is like, right? She has never seen a kid in her life, but she was an only kid. She was an only kid. And now they are together wanting to have eight kids, you know, and she gives birth one after the other. And suddenly their marriage falls apart because they don't know how to bring up kids and they don't have help and they don't have a model. And they just wanted to be like, you know, a nice family. They went to Shabbos. Uh, so that's another problem, which I'm facing a lot is that people are not, are not understanding that you can't just take a picture of a different family from America, you know, who came to Russia for two weeks and try to build this model in your own home because you're different. That's something I'm struggling a lot with, and I'm trying to prepare people before marriage. I'm doing a lot of, you know, pre-marital classes, even to people who are not in Shadokim yet, just to explain to them that, like, all those, you know, things that were different and Hashem was different things from you and if you like something that's perfect but you have to you know realize if you're ready for that and if your husband is ready for that and how you communicate with each other the idea of communication I think is a very weak part in this part of the world you know because people are not commu- like it's the, the, the communication skills are very very weak uh, I see a lot you know family members uh, hiding from each other the fact that someone is sick in Russia, okay? Let's say, like, uh, mother becomes sick and she's not telling her parents because they're going to be very nervous. I don't think anywhere else in the world such a thing exists, you know? So you keep something in secret because you don't want other people to be worried and then you suffer alone. Like, things that just make me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Different mentality, really. Mentality things which uh, influence family life a lot, a lot, a lot. Sexuality, okay, is a topic which people are not even considering to talk about, you know. And when I'm talking openly about this, you know, inside your family with your husband, they're like, You are a rabbit soup telling me to talk to my husband about that? I'm crazy. Like, my parents never spoke to me about sexuality, okay? <laughs> That's just the reality of life they were born in. They never talked to their mother about sex. It is a very new concept and America is definitely taking it to the opposite extreme. These are great, great examples. What else did we not cover that you feel is important to? Uh, well, so basically, uh, one important thing, which I think is maybe unique, and you tell me if it is, when I teach my students, okay, when I was building this new center, really from scratch, like we didn't have a building for three years and we we're just renting uh, halls and renting uh, apartments and renting, you know, studios, whatever it was crazy. Now I have a building, you know, a very nice, fancy building with classes and a, a place for Shabbos meals, which is amazing. My goal is uh, growth. Like, I, you know, every person has his, like, motto in his head. So for me, it's growth and growth in different spheres of life. I want my students to become, to grow religiously, mean, meaning spiritually, okay, but also emotionally and professionally. Like, for me, it's very important that the... Uh, graduates of Alami Mansko would be people who build healthy families and who grow professionally, who want to become more in their professional lives, and people who work on themselves, even if they didn't become from, but let's say they are working on themselves. That's also very important for me because I think that sometimes in Kiro we forget about that. We're all about like Shomer Shavosh, Shavosh, which is amazing. But I saw so many examples in my life of people who became Shomer Shabbos, knowing they maybe even went to Yeshiva, but they're not, you know, they don't grow professionally. They are always trying to find some stipend and they don't realize themselves as, you know, as people. 
So I'm having tons of workshops and different seminars that really about like personal growth, Musar and non-Musar, and professional development, because I feel that we live in a century where a woman, a man, doesn't matter. We all wanna we all wanna grow professionally. We all want to realize our missions also through our professions, because our professions cover such a big such a big part of your life, let's say like you, right? You found this something which gives you to realize your potential. It's part I'm sure it's part of your like life mission, right? So that's what I want for my for my students. I want them to grow in different spheres of their lives and see that it's all about Hashem. Like I think that a person who works on himself and builds a healthy family and goes professionally, it's all about serving our, our creator. So you chose Kirov because of a calling or was there something more intellectual about it? I think, uh, you know, it was supposed to it was a calling because that was something I was naturally good in. Like I was having those discussions when I was a kid and my house was also, I had a very small apartment where I lived with my mother and father, you know, like a two bed, like a one bedroom apartment. It was a very small apartment, but we always had guests, you know, and people who tried to come and see what's a kiddish. Like it was something so natural for me that of course it was a calling. But afterwards, I now, a lot of success I'm having is because I'm also having my secular knowledge and having my secular profession and people who come and who are not so much interested in Torah, let's be honest, but a lot of girls are interested in psychology. And when they see this, you know, from lady (laughs) wearing something strange in her head, talking intellectual things about psychology and family relationships, so they are becoming much more open to everything else I'm saying. So you're attracting them on an intellectual level, not necessarily a religious exactly. level. Do you see issues with children of Bali Chuva struggling with the Sviva and uh, not wanting to be from? Not necessarily with the Sviva, like that's less because Baruch Hashem, you know, we have already not a lot, but we still have families, you know, they have friends. Let's say my kids have all their friends are from. You know, it's very different from the way I grew up. But I think a lot of children of Balei Tshuva, and not necessarily in Russia, I think all around the world, maybe in Israel also, where there are Russian-speaking families, they struggle with the fact that their people, their, their parents becoming from, are not happy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they see, that I have those students telling me that they're, they're, they're from, but they're they're suffering in order to stay from and become and to grow in your Yiddish guide, you have to see that your parents are happy. I think that's like a very important thing. And many ballet for different reasons, they are very from, <laughs> but not necessarily happy. And that gives a bad impression about Yiddish guide or the kids. That's something I see a lot. How did you decide to stay when many people left. Was that a calling also? It was a very, very hard decision. And I didn't, like, no one knew what's going to be here. I'm not sure everyone knows now. <laughs> but, like, I believe very much that when you dig in, like, you're in a shama a lot, and you ask yourself, like, what does Shem want from me? Of course, sometimes you ask for advice, which is also very normal and natural. You understand, like, where you are needed. When you have certain, like, missions, I think, that the world, you don't feel, think about what's more comfortable for me. Like, I'm sure it's much more comfortable for me would be to be in Israel, you know, and have normal chinook for my kids and whatever, and, like, not think about different things I'm thinking now. But where I'm most needed now, I think for now it's Moscow, because not many people would agree to live in a, a life I'm living now. 
And Baruch Hashem, like my life is highly, highly, highly productive. I think in other places, my life is much more comfortable, but probably, probably less productive. What are your goals for your kids? Do you want to send them away? What, where are you holding right now? Do you want to keep them? Would you want them to all stay and continue doing Kirov like you? Kirov is something which is very, uh, you, like it has to be good for a kid. I can't tell all of my six kids, okay, so now you're going to be my, you know, I can't find a couple, so you're going to be my next couple. <laughs> you can't just throw on a kid a thing like that. I'm sure that for some of them, that would be something they would love. And for sure, that they admire that. And my my uh, daughter dreams about opening Kolami Moscow in Israel. She has all this interesting ideas. But it's not for all of them. And I'm not someone who's going to push anyone into Kirov because as the as my kids, they know all the advantages of Kirov and they know all the disadvantages of Kirov. They know how hard it is and they know how inspired we are. So I'm sure some of them will find something else and some of them probably will, will go, you know, in this in the direction. Are you planning to send them away or? Uh, at a certain age, I think I would have to. I don't feel there's an option. Okay. But, uh, the advice I got from my, you know, friends and from your mother and from other people I admire was that try to keep them home as much as you can. Like my, I would uh, think about even sending my kid now who is who just turned 13, but emotionally it's still not the right decision. So I'm keeping him home for about a year or two tell he is mature enough to leave okay it was so amazing having you on sarah this was such an honor for me thank truly you, thank you so much and if anyone wants to follow you or find you or connect with you how could they find you okay we can find me on moscow and instagram and myself and instagram and i have if there are russian speakers who are listening to that so i have also a telegram channel which is called a portion of inspiration and i write different ideas, different Torah, my cases, which I'm dealing with every day. So that can also be something interesting, which people who speak Russian can be interested in. Fantastic. We'll link them in the show notes. And thank you so much, Sarah. I wish you much Hatzlacha. Thank you. Thank you, Brady. And this is our last and final back and forth. We have Benjamin Wallen back. It's so nice to have you back. Hi, thank you for having me again. And we have you responding to last week's response to SD. Tell us what you have to say. And the reason I'm doing this, normally I do not have responses go back and forth. I'll have a response and then the rest can be taken to social media or in a private conversation. But you did really pour your heart out there. And we did get some people who did want to set you up with people. So there was Appreciate some some of that happening, as well as women like Esty reaching out with their feedback. And and a few people did, many people did reach out after yesterday's release, thanking Esty's representation. And it was both male and female. All I want to say is she's not the only one who was thinking what she said. So I, uh, But I will have you respond because you did really open yourself up and maybe you didn't realize how bad it could get. So, so I'd love for you to respond. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with criticism. I'm okay with people disagreeing with me. I just And Esty makes some valid points. I don't deny that. But she clearly misunderstood and misconstrued a lot of what I said. To quote a friend of mine who listened to both what I said and what she said, Esty should have listened to my interview again and taken better notes. So I've got a list here of notes that I took while listening to what she said, and I appreciate the opportunity to respond. So number one, she says that I, you know, you have 
it was almost in a dismissive way. You have a guy who's been working on it for 10 years. He's not going to change. So to set the record straight, I have not been working on this for 10 years. 10 years ago, I didn't even know I had this, these issues. I was completely self-unaware. I only became aware that I had these issues less than seven years ago. And uh, I learned about attachment theory about three years ago. And if you combine all the amount of time that I actually consciously decided that, yes, I'm going to be working on this issue, we're talking about a period of time of approximately three years, one of which was during COVID. So I was basically in seclusion, which, which did actually help. Number two, she completely misunderstood my lifting weights analogy. I think the way she understood it was that I was referring to women as weights, and which is ridiculous. I didn't imply that. The analogy is meant for the person who's going through the attachment issues. When I say use the metaphor of lifting weights, it's that when you are working through the problems you have with being in a relationship, what you have with attachment, the the more you go into it and work yourself through it, not discard women like a 10-pound weight and a 20-pound weight, but meaning instead of dropping a relationship and running away, which was which would be like dropping the weights and just running out of the gym, meaning you would try to work through the relationship. There are metaphors for the person themselves in working through it. And once you get to the end, you will be very accomplished in what you have gotten to by working through your problems instead of running away from them. And it's, it's not at all having to do with a woman involved. It has to do with the person who's working through, or the man, in the case of women's avoidant, it's working through the issue. It, it's the metaphors on the person, nothing to do with the women. And I did not intend to refer to women as weights, and I would never do that. Number three, she completely misunderstood my reference to the nine-month relationship I once had. She made it seem like I was patting myself on the back for having been in a nine-month relationship, so no problem. No, no, it's the exact opposite. It was that relationship that had a ton of problems, which only after it ended did I realize that I had these issues. So I'm not congratulating myself, I'm, and the length of time is not even relevant to the story. It's the, journey that, it's, it's, it's the fact that that relationship put me onto the journey that I'm currently on. The point is that before that, I was completely self-unaware, and now I am more aware. So that, that was also a misunderstanding. The mere fact that somebody's in a nine-month relationship is not saying that, oh, I'm, I'm closer to getting married. That, that wasn't the point at all. It was that that relationship set me on the path that I'm on now. Number four, so she's absolutely correct in that my issues are not somebody else's to correct. That's 100% true, and I didn't imply otherwise. They're my issues and mine alone. When I gave advice, so to speak, to somebody, you know, for somebody to be patient. First of all, it was very clear that that has to come with pressure too. I think she made it seem like that wasn't an, that somebody just to be patient forever. I was very clear that that's not the case. It's not for everyone and nobody could take it or leave it. It's meant for somebody who truly sees something in someone and thinks that there's a good possibility that the relationship could progress to the next level. I'm making a suggestion, you know, not to scare them away. And when I, when I say that there should be patience plus pressure, patience and pressure is, is, kind of like space is giving the person space to realize people who are avoidant have this, you know, are fiercely independent. They like their personal space. They need to know that their personal space is not going to be permanently taken away from them. They need to, you know, and if somebody always needs to be attached to the hip with someone, then that's not the right match. But some people are fine with that. And if they just need to reassure their partner that, hey, I'm not going to be taking away all of your personal space and your independence. So it's, it's just basically calming them down. Now, obviously, if it's not going anywhere after a period of time, and that's, that's a subjective amount, then, you know, everyone's got to do what's right for them. I'm just throwing a suggestion out there for somebody who sees potential in something and how they think that something can, can progress. She made some generalizations based on anecdotes about, I, I don't know it's whether her own experiences or friends of hers who suffered from being burned in these situations. 
But for every anecdote that she has, I have friends who have gone through the same thing and have made it through and are happily married. So I don't know if there's data out there. I really don't know. But as far as I know, it's for every story she has, I've got an opposing story. So really, everybody needs to judge what's right for them. I think just important, you know, generalization is just in general is not fair. And uh, so long as a, per- as a person is aware of what their issues are, both sides, the person who's going through the issues and the person they're dating, and they're working through the issues, then that's, then I think that, you know, everybody needs to judge for them if that's working. But if that has, a, you know, a, an end point and, and a happy ending, but I was just wanted to clear that up. All right, number five, maybe I'm misunderstanding her, but when she said, you know, if you like somebody and they like you, think she said something along the lines of things aren't that complicated and anything could be worked out. Again, I feel that this is more of a generalization, nothing to do with me personally. I think that that's in generalization that is objectively false. I think everybody in a relationship is always working on their relationship in order for the relationship to remain intact. For some people, it's very easy to fall in love and they're happy. Now, that's great, but I think that that's not the case for everybody. And uh, that doesn't mean that th- those people aren't deserving of being in a relationship. Um, I think things aren't so cut and dry, and that's kind of an oversimplification. Number six, to her point about people who are avoidance and that being a red flag. So yes, it, it is a red flag. I-, I agree with that. However, it's not, it's not something that is an automatic conclusion that this is necessarily a deal breaker. It should lead to more questions. Is the person aware of their problems? Are they working through those issues? It's not a monolith, and it's, we need to be careful not to paint everyone with the same brush. At the end of the day, we're all individuals. We all have our own set of issues, and each person should be analyzed separately. And again, everybody needs to, the, the other person, the person that the avoidant person is going out with, has to know how much tolerance that they have, and that that's 100% needs to be respected by both sides. Um, on a more general level regarding when to suspect avoidance, she gave a threshold of about 25. I think that's low, especially in more modern communities where a lot of men are focused on their careers for a while. It takes them time to start dating. And uh, I would probably actually agree with her assessment for someone who's 30 or even 35, depending on uh, multiple uh, multiple factors. Finally, on, on a personal level, I would want to add that you know, for most of my 20s and my, my early 30s, I lived in Chicago. My dating options were few and far between. I didn't date very much, and that's putting it lightly. Uh, and I quickly learned that traveling to date simply wasn't something that worked for me. And so it took me a lot longer to be in a situation that opened to my eyes to the situation that I'm actually in. And uh, like I said, my awakening came only about seven years ago. And between that and other things going on in my life, the actual work I've been able to devote to this has been far less than that. Like I said, it's probably around three years. So am I late to the game? Yes, but it's better late than ever. And that's my response. Thank you so much. I have two questions sure. for you. Do you feel ready to get married right now? Well, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I, I'm not dating somebody. So it's too theoretical a question. I mean, well, if somebody well-meaning wanted to set you up with somebody, is that I, these are this is too theoretical a question. Yes, I, I you know, I, I I'm not sure if I said this in the last interview you did with me. For much of my 20s and early 30s, if somebody would have asked, asked me that question, I would have said, yes, of course. But that's, that's lip service. But now that you've done the work over the right. last few years. I would, need to, I would need to apply the work in a situation in which I'm in a, in a relationship and I'm ready to do the work, yes. And one more question, and it's just an eye-opening question. You're not necessarily supposed to answer it or have an answer to it. 
can you see how telling someone that you just learned about this 10 years ago and you've just been working on this for the last three years in comparison to if you start thinking of yourself as a dater and when you're 21, 22, it's a long time. But to someone who just life happens and you deal with stuff, three years to deal with something. I mean, you have people who who get divorced or, God forbid, lose a spouse. And then if they're remarried within three years, nobody's thinking, oh, that's too short. Like a, a life can happen in three years. So if somebody's thinking, okay, three years, now what do you have to show for it? Don't don't expect people to treat you like this is brand new. This didn't happen I, I, two I, months I'm ago. Not, I, I'm not looking for anybody to treat me. I, I'm not looking for 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 anybody to look at me like an Abba or to have feel sorry for me. I not at all. No, that's not what I'm saying. Is when you're defending yourself, you're saying I only started working on this over the last well, three years. Okay, so they're they're thinking, but it's not only three years. That's what they're thinking. Okay, so first of all, first of all, you're right, and look to each to each their own. If if SD had come on and said he's been working at it for three years, that's that's way too long of a time. I, I was coming down to set the record straight. Number two, during the three years, you also need to find somebody. I mean, not everybody who starts dating who has zero baggage or zero avoidance issues end up marrying the first person they they date. Sometimes it takes three, four. You know, somebody who really starts in earnest when they're 21 might not get married until they're 27. Does that mean like, okay, they've been dating for six years, there's something wrong with them? But they might not go on a fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth, twelfth date either with that same person. Meaning you should be able to tell where you, there, there should be that goal in mind to to try to tell right away if this person uh, but i improved. disagree i don't think you can tell right away if somebody's if someone's compatible for you i'm you know especially as you get older but you could tell if they're not compatible for you that's true and i, I mean i i there have not been too many girls that i've gone on that many dates with thank you so much for setting thank the you. record straight i think with this we can complete this conversation move on to new topics okay, thank you very much wish you the best of luck thank you Thank you for listening until the end. And as promised, I will read to you my message from an anonymous Shatran. The reason I know I need to go on a break as a matchmaker. Let us start with the lady who requests all my time, tells me it is not her job to ignite excitement or to have answers, but I must bring all that to the table for her daughter. And she does not send a gift. She does not send flowers. She does not send a thank you but she sends an abundance of criticism in exchange for the hours I spend on setting her daughter up. To the ladies who send me five-minute voice notes after repeated requests to send texts instead, at least you feel some remorse as you preempt each voice note with, I'm sorry for this voice note, but... To the man and the woman who respond with my suggestions to him and her, I told you I need someone cool and attractive. To the single that I've spent hours of time looking for a match, setting him or her up time and time again, receiving not a single thank you, but a handful of complaints. You can stop sending me requests to send you compatible matches again and again. We are done and we are through. To the woman who sent me a small fee to keep her daughter in mind for a month, I spent hours and days trying to find a guy to go out with your daughter. I was able to get her on one date that month. Regretfully, you thought I stole money from you. I returned your money and hope that I never cross paths with you again. I wish you and your daughter best of luck and far from my life. To the woman who bothered me for months to set up her daughter, we both know I set your daughter up with numerous wonderful men. I then sent your daughter's current husband, your daughter's profile, and he decided to go ahead with the suggestion through a different matchmaker. 
That is all right with me, but it pains me deeply when not only did I not get a thank you, but I wasn't invited to your daughter's wedding that was all over my Instagram feed. It's clear that your kind matters toward me was solely dependent on the time that your daughter was dating. To the girls that reach out to me every week for suggestions and don't hesitate to message me back within minutes of a suggestion. Where are you when I need to reach you for feedback for the boy? Where are you after a date when I'm trying to reach you? To the single that I have tried for years to set up and help find his intended one, why did I find out from a neighbor months after you got married? To the young men and women out there and their parents who make it clear that they think I am the reason that their single is still single. It is my fault that the single does not come off as attractive or kind or da da da. Stop looking at me and go look in the mirror. I thought this message is worth sharing, especially because I've been wanting to get that side of the shatchan. We have so many frustrated singles. We also have so many frustrated shatchanim. How could we make this better? Most shatchanim are unpaid and they work so hard. Many of the times they are left holding the heartbreak and all the hard feelings on behalf of everyone else. Can we do more? What are your thoughts? Thanks for listening until the end. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Feel free to join the discussion group. You can join by sending me an email. My information is in the show notes. And I hope you have a great week. See you next time.